Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, and we're joined today by Dr. Jason R. Combs, Assistant Professor of Ancient Scripture at Brigham Young University. We're talking about the book he co-edited. It's called Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. Today, we're going to talk about a chapter that Jason wrote called Divine Nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're talking about the Godhead. And as a co-editor, Jason, I assume you got to pick a chapter of your choice rather than maybe get assigned. Did you pick this one yourself? Actually, I didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I tried to pawn this off on somebody else, <laughs> but uh, two other people, in fact. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful that it ended up falling to me because it was a wonderful opportunity for me to really dive into this early Christian literature on this really complex subject and to get my head around it. I, I think I read one book once by Stephen Webb about the Trinity, and I think there was like, for 30 seconds, I feel like I actually understood what they were going for with the Trinity, and I was like, oh, this it all connects, and then it sort of drifted away from yeah. me. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really, the, the whole reason it's so complicated is because our, our scriptures are complicated, right? Our, our scriptures contain thousands of years of history of different people thinking about who God is. And when you put them all together and try and make sense of some scriptures that proclaim God as one and others that describe God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it can become a little bit difficult to reconcile those things. So early Christians did the best they could to, to come to an understanding of what that meant. And the way they did is, frankly, quite beautiful. We'll get to that. I want to start with kind of talking about theology broadly, right? There's there's some cliches about theology that, that it's basically like intellectual overreach, that people are overthinking things. We might imagine theologians to be these boring old people arguing about irrelevant things like whether God could microwave a burrito that was so hot that he can't <laughs> eat it, you know, like that kind of a thing. Right. But we're, when we talk about early day saints thinking through God— I want to challenge some of those attitudes or some of those thoughts that we Latter-day Saints might have about doing theology itself. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that early-day Saints thinking about God are thinking about it in a very different context than we come from today. Today, when we think about God uh, as Latter-day Saints, we're thinking about it predominantly in a broader Christian context. And so we're comparing our beliefs as Christians with those of other Christians. But the early-day Saints— we're thinking about God in a much broader religious world where there was a lot of different beliefs about uh, the gods of the Greek or Roman pantheons and trying to understand how the Christian God differed from them. What do you think was driving these early day saints as they're thinking about these things? Because it's easy to imagine that they're just eggheads or maybe they didn't have a lot to do because there weren't uh, video games or, uh, you know, we didn't have the same kind of things to do. So maybe they were just doing theology because that's what was available. What was driving this theology? Yeah, well, some of that may be true. I think some of them definitely were <laughs> eggheads and, and didn't have a whole lot to do. And yet, the, the the discussion over the nature of God and especially the nature of Christ is is deeply rooted in the desire to understand 
our relationship as human beings with God, uh, who we are as human beings, our relationship with other human beings, an acknowledgement that as human beings, we aren't perfect and need help to become better. And so an understanding of how the atonement of Jesus Christ worked, all of that is, is, comes together in discussions about the nature of God and the nature of Christ. And you also point out how these people were driven by devotion. This was an exercise of love often. This was an exercise of trying to worship. Absolutely. Yeah, at the very end, I, I quote uh, a, a famous Christian theologian, one of the Cappadocian fathers uh, named Gregory of Nyssa, who talks about his work of devotion, his work of seeking to understand God and the divine nature as being an act of love and as being an attempt to reconcile that which is godlike within us human beings with God. For, for Gregory and for other ancient Christians, our ability to think, our ability to reason is part of the gift God has given us by creating us in his image. And so using that gift to contemplate who God is, is a way of us drawing closer to God. So he paraphrases Paul uh, at the end, saying, talking about how by using our mind and reason to contemplate God, eventually uh, we will ascend to God himself. And he goes on to quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, where Paul says, we shall know even as we are known. And I just, I think that's beautiful. Hmm. So thinking about the nature of Jesus and the nature of God says a lot about our own nature. It's learning about ourselves as we learn about God. And this is what you see early theologians doing, just as we Latter-day Saints do today. And early Christians wondered about Jesus's nature, right? They have stories about Jesus. In the New Testament, we read these stories about miracles that he performed and the resurrection itself, obviously, and things that he said that were sort of cryptic about, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father and things like this. But they had stories was really what they were working with. So they wondered, like, was Jesus fully a god? Was he fully a human? Was he some sort of half and half? Was there something else? So walk us through some of the earliest ideas about this. Your chapter really breaks it up very clearly. Yeah, and I think before we even get to the point where Christians are writing down stories about Jesus, we have Christians reflecting sometimes even poetically on the nature of of God and Christ. I'm thinking of Philippians. There's a, a Christ hymn in Philippians, where Paul, it may have been a hymn that Paul inherited, it may have been some poetry Paul himself wrote, but in that hymn, Paul describes Christ as having the divine nature, as being God, and yet thought it not, uh, how does our KJV phrase it? Thought not robbery, robbery, right? To, to, um, To cling to that. And so he empties himself of his divinity to take on human flesh. It takes on the likeness of humans, it says. It's beautiful, and it still leaves a lot of questions, right, about about what it actually was like. So break up those three different views. There's adoptionism, docetism, and then where the ancient Orthodox Church landed on those questions. Yeah, so some of the earliest Christian writings we have uh, in in the first century and second century uh, tend to either emphasize Christ's divinity or his humanity, and some take it to extremes. Some suggested that Christ was fully human, that he was born 
just as other humans are born, that Joseph was his father, and that God actually adopted Christ, adopted Jesus, uh, because Jesus was such a righteous human being. Some early Christian texts that argued this would suggest that that adoption happened at baptism, and it happened by the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus and empowering Jesus to do miracles and other works of wonder. And others would suggest that that adoption happened when God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, other Christians went to the opposite extreme and said, no, 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 Jesus is divine. The scriptures make it clear Jesus is divine. And Jesus is so divine, in fact, that he wouldn't have anything to do with this uh, flesh that can get sick and, and corrupted and die. And so Jesus only seemed or appeared to be human. That's that's the docetist position. And uh, that that Jesus seemed to be human and interacted with human beings in that image, but was never actually fully or truly human. Those are sort of appealing in the sense that the simplicity of them, right? That either Jesus was just just a human, but a remarkable human who then got adopted, or that Jesus was fully divine and he appeared to be human to teach others or you know, whatever. The ancient church arrived at neither of those positions. Where did where did the ancient Christians wind up? Really, this is also a story of canonization. Uh, as Christians decided to accept more and more of the texts that today we have in our New Testament into their canon of Scripture, and we have another chapter by Tom Wayman that talks about this process, as they make these decisions, they have to embrace all that Scripture teaches about who Jesus is. And there are scriptures that definitely describe Jesus in very human terms and others that describe him in very godlike or divine terms. Uh, just take, for example, the Gospel of Mark versus the Gospel of John. The Gospel of Mark describes Jesus in much more human ways. The Gospel of John, uh, Jesus boldly proclaims that he is in the Father and the Father in him and that the Father and him are one. And so Christians had to make sense of these two different proclamations that Jesus is human and divine. And for many early Christians, those two spheres are dramatically different. Now, Latter-day Saints today, we, we accept that there is a difference between divinity and humanity, that God is sinless, that God is perfect, that God is glorified, and that, and that we humans are none of those. Ancient Christians uh, often went even further to suggest that the divine nature is utterly different than human nature. They, are, they do not exist on a continuum. They are totally different things. And this then gets into uh, how Christians understand what Jesus did in saving us, that he, as a divine being, came on and took on all of humanity to unite us with the divine nature. And that's really what was at stake, I think, is your chapter, as I learned from your chapter, which was, how could Jesus really save us? And it mattered to some early Christians who were writing and saying, well, he, Jesus had to be fully human as well as fully God. He had to be fully human because he had to comprehend all of humanity. If he was going to rescue humanity, he, it had to include all of what that meant. Absolutely. And yet they also wanted to insist that there was one aspect of what it meant to be human that, did, that Jesus did not enact, <laughs> the, the, and that is sin, mm -hmm. that Jesus was fully human in all things except for sin, mm. except that he then conquered sin. He took it upon himself to defeat it in his suffering and death. Mm. 
Another question this brings up then, if, if we get to the nature of Jesus, is the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. And your book also describes three different views kind of on a continuum. Yeah, let's let's start with uh let's start with Tertullian. Uh Tertullian's a, a Christian that lives in the in the late second, early third century. And he writes this uh treatise called Against Praxeus. Praxeus is another Christian that we don't know a whole lot about. We really only know about him from Tertullian's treatise, but we do know something about what Praxeus believed. Praxeus believed that there was one God, as scripture affirmed, uh, but he went further to suggest that the way that one God works is that one God manifests himself sometimes in the form of the Father and at other times in the form of the Son and at other times in the form of the Holy Spirit. But there is always only one person or personage who is God. Tertullian disagreed. Tertullian insisted, no, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, and that those three distinct persons are united together as one God. And Tertullian called his belief what Tertullian believed, uh, the Trinity. And so this idea of different modes that you mentioned, it, would that sort of be like how water can be liquid, gas, and solid? Like, is that kind of what yeah, that person so, was sometimes, sometimes you will get Christians today using that sort of language. Uh, uh, those, those who are trained in theology or in early Christian history get a little uncomfortable yeah. when Christians start describing God as, as uh, water being in the form of ice or steam or maybe the three parts of an egg or something like that, yeah. because that does stout, start to sound like modalism, uh, which was declared a heresy. Um, yeah. And then the other end of the spectrum was paganism, right? And you mentioned this earlier about just views of many gods. And in this instance, Christianity could be seen by some as a pagan religion in that it suggested there were three gods. Right. And Christians wanted to strongly refute that idea. Uh, for early Christians, they were not like the pagan polytheists. If you think of Greek and Mo Roman mythology, Zeus has his own plans, has his own desires, has his own interactions with human beings. They're totally different from the interactions of, say, Athena or say Dionysus, or any of the other Greek gods. Christians wanted to insist that their god was not like that, was not like these pagan polytheists. Their god was united. So whether the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, who are three distinct persons, didn't matter which one showed up, they would act in the exact same way as all the others. Let's talk about the role that councils played and how creeds came about, because when they're trying to settle these questions, the way they did it was to gather people together and to come up with statements about it. And let's talk about that and maybe challenge some cliches that we have about creeds and councils. Yeah, it wasn't always easy for Christians to gather. In the, in the early centuries of Christianity, uh, there was, especially in the third century, there was a lot of persecution uh, from the Roman Empire. So Christians could not easily gather. It really wasn't until the time of the Emperor Constantine uh, when uh, persecution was ended and Constantine uh, declared Christianity to be one of the official religions of Rome that Christians finally had the ability to gather. Uh, gathering was also complicated because of the cost of travel and of, of leaving one's church or congregation to, to go to a different place to have these sorts of meetings. 
Uh, so it really wasn't possible until Constantine comes on the scene, ends the persecution of Christians, makes Christianity an official religion of Rome, and then invites a large group of Christians to gather at Nicaea. And this is this is the first great ecumenical council. And what did they come up with there when they're—I mean, one of the big questions was the relationship of God and Jesus, right? Yeah, there are several different issues that they want to deal with at Nicaea. Uh, one of their big purposes for gathering uh, was simply to unite Christianity under a common creed. Uh, prior to the Council of Nicaea, different Christian groups throughout the Roman Empire and beyond each came up with their own criteria for what a what a new convert needed to affirm before being baptized. So this was their first chance to correlate what they <laughs> yeah. believed. Uh, in, in the book, I actually compare it to the role of the Correlation Committee in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. It was their first chance to really all get together and say, okay, let's let's come up with a, a common agreed upon list of our core beliefs that we can then share throughout the world. And you point out that this is necessary in part because scriptural language didn't answer those questions quite so clearly, and so they would even have to incorporate language and ideas that weren't from the scriptures. That's right. That's right. Uh, when Latter-day Saints today read the Nicene Creed, for instance, I think one of the parts that we get most uncomfortable with is when it introduces language like uh, consubstantial in Greek, homoousios, where it talks about the idea that God the Father and Jesus Christ are of the same substance or same essence. Uh, We often misunderstand that, though. Uh, As Latter-day Saints, we often, when we hear that, we think what it's saying is that God the Father and Jesus Christ are one and the same person, uh, that is absolutely not what they meant. That's the heresy of modalism that we yeah. were just talking about yeah. a minute ago. What they mean is that God the Father and Jesus Christ are made of the same stuff, that they're of the same divine nature, that God the Father and Jesus Christ are both God. They are, they, as, as Latter-day Saints would say, they are both part of the Godhead. That sounds a lot closer to Latter-day Saint belief than— absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think this is one area where we have often made the difference between what we believe and latter and, and other Christians a lot we've made the gulf a lot wider than it actually is. What differs do you think? So we've got the Nicene Creed. Is there are there things in there that differ from today's latter day same view of the Godhead? So if we're talking about the original Nicene Creed, the one that they developed in, in three twenty five AD Part of the Nicene Creed at the end is a condemnation of some of the beliefs of a Christian named Arius. And one of the purposes of the Nicene Creed was to settle a dispute that other Christians had had with this Christian named Arius. Arius believed that Jesus Christ uh, was created, he used the word created, created by God the Father, and therefore was not fully God. He was, in some ways, less than God the Father. And other Christians, that made them very uncomfortable because if Jesus Christ is less than God the Father, then did Jesus Christ only bring us up through his atonement to that level and doesn't actually unite us with God the Father? That was some of their concerns. So many Latter-day Saints today would not be entirely uncomfortable with the idea of describing Christ as under the Father. I think we would be a little bit uncomfortable with describing Christ as not fully divine or as somehow less than God. 
Um, so even when it comes to some of the teachings of Arius that were refuted, if we read them carefully and understand where the Council of Nicaea was coming from, I think we can definitely sympathize, if not fully agree, with a lot of what was taught there. Hmm. How do you think these debates impacted day-to-day early Christians? We've talked about how the records are sparse. We don't always know exactly what was going on for day-to-day Christians, but did these councils and this information get down to regular believers or affect how they worshipped or anything like that? So Eusebius suggests that the reason Constantine called this Council of Nicaea is because the whole eastern half of the empire that Constantine had just inherited was up in arms about this issue, that (laughs) that Christians were fighting against Christians and that this was a really big deal and that Constantine needed to come in and, and resolve it. It's hard to say how much credence we should give to that. It is reasonable to assume that a lot of different Christian bishops, again, those who could read and write, those who were contemplating these issues, would have had disagreements with each other about it, and each of them falling on on different opinions based on their reading of Scripture. Uh, But the idea that that the average member were all up in arms about this, I I think, is probably a bit of a stretch. (laughs) Did it affect practice at all? I mean, it seems that baptism would have probably largely been the same, and and celebrating the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper would probably have been pretty similar? Uh, Similar, yes. But I would say that it affected practice in that one of the reasons for establishing this creed was to establish a set of things that uh, converts to the church needed to affirm. So it was making clear that to, to become Christian, a convert needed to affirm that there was a God who was Father. Uh, that that God is almighty, that, that that God created the world. They needed to affirm that Jesus Christ died for our sins uh, and that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Uh, these were common core beliefs that they wanted to make sure that Christians throughout the church were affirming. And I think today's Latter-day Saints will be interested to see how your chapter lays out similarities between some of the, the creeds that they came up with and what Latter-day Saints believe today. I mean, there are differences there, but I think... I really liked your point about the impulse behind some of those beliefs, like the concern that, oh, is Jesus less than God the Father or less powerful or whatever? Latter-day Saints, of course, would say, absolutely not. Now, when we're talking about metaphysics, well, was he made literally of the same stuff or whatever? You know, we might differ or we might have various beliefs on that. But what's behind them, this concern to recognize Jesus's godliness um, and, and power and ability that's what's driving it, and we can share that in common even today, not just with early Christians, but with uh, with Christians today and other traditions. That's right. And and again, as Latter-day Saints, we certainly have beliefs that differ from other Christians. But by studying this early Christian history, we can be much more clear about precisely what things we differ on and which things we don't. We often assume that the biggest difference between us and other Christians is a difference in number that we affirm that God is three separate persons and the rest of the Christian world affirms that God is one person. That is not the case at all. And it's really the the big problem comes in. As, as Latter-day Saints, we tend to be less, we are not very sophisticated with our theological vocabulary. Let, let me put it that way. Yeah, not and, a lot of uh, Latin and Greek. Right, our... <laughs> right. Exactly, exactly. And, and so, for instance, Latter-day Saints tend to use the word being and person as though they're synonymous like Latter-day Saints will often say something like, we believe that God is three separate beings. 
Well, if a Christian who is familiar with this early Christian history and with Christian theology today were to hear that, what they would hear is not that God is three separate persons, but that God is three separate beings. Like we use the word human being. So to say that God is three separate beings, they would hear that as us saying, well, one of them is God. The other is something else. The other is something else entirely. Yeah. Well, that's not what we believe at all. We, we do believe that God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are all the Godhead, that they are all God. They are all equally divine. Yeah, they so, could hear us saying basically, oh, we believe that the Godhead could like be at war with each other. Or right, right, like the ancient a... Greco-Roman yeah. gods, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's not what we believe. Yeah. Hundreds of years after these councils, right, we get to the Lutheran Augsburg Confession, and this is another creed that Latter-day Saints have often heard about or thought about and compared to our beliefs in a negative way. This is a creed that says that God is without body parts or passions. And your chapter offers Latter-day Saints a new perspective on this that kind of challenges our thinking about what that meant. Yeah, I don't spend a whole lot of time on the Lutheran Augsburg Confession just because that is so many centuries beyond what I deal with in this chapter. But I do mention it, and I mention it because early Christians are already talking about these ideas, about the body of God, about whether God experiences passions or how God experiences passions or emotion. Uh, Even though it only becomes a creed in the Protestant era, centuries later, early Christians are already discussing these things. And so in terms of the, the idea of whether God experiences passions or whether God has a body, once again, Christians are discussing these things in the context of a much broader religious world where Uh, Greek and Roman philosophers are already thinking about what is the nature of Zeus's body? What is the nature of Zeus as experiencing passions, right? And so Christians, for let's just take the, the idea that God is without passions. When Christians talk about that, they want to distinguish God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit from Zeus, from Dionysus. If you read any Greek mythology, you know that Zeus is less than virtuous, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, he's he's often chasing after earthly women. He's going after. There's a lot he's of rage. starting wars, right? Yeah, a There's a lot of rage. Yeah. He's he is very much controlled by his passions. So when early Christians first make the claim that God is without passion, they do not mean that God is without feeling, they mean that God is not controlled by his passions. So God God could experience righteous anger, but not uncontrollable rage. God could experience love. God loves us, but God does not experience uncontrollable lust. And so Christians were trying to differentiate between the greater gods of the, the Greek and Roman world and their experience of their own God and how their God is represented in Scripture. I really appreciated that difference where you pointed out that that God has feelings, and they and Christians believed that God had feelings, yeah. but that He wasn't driven by passions that would control God's That's behavior right. or make God unreliable. Because I think the real concern for people was whether God was trustworthy. That's right, and, and whether we could believe rightfully in God. Uh, That's right, and God's love for us. Yeah, there's this great quotation from a Christian named John Chrysostom. Golden Mouth. Was he Golden Mouth? That's Is that right. the right one? Yeah. Yeah, that's he he earned that nickname because <laughs> uh of his um sermons. 
Okay, so here's what Chrysostom taught right around 370 AD. He taught this, For if the wrath of God were a passion, one might well despair as being unable to quench the flame which he had kindled by so many evil doings. But since the divine nature is unimpassioned, meaning since God is not controlled by his passions, even if he punishes, he does this not with wrath, but with tender care and much loving kindness. Therefore, we should be of much good courage and trust in the power of repentance. Yeah, that's a God who feels, but that isn't who driven by unreliable passions. That's right, yeah. So Chrysostom's making this argument that if God was controlled by his passions and God hates sin, then as soon as us human beings commit a sin, that's the end of it for us. There would be nothing else we could possibly do to quench the rage or wrath of God. I noticed as I was reading throughout that you pointed out where philosophy and theology really inform each other. And it's easy to think that philosophy, let's just call that like ideas, right? Uh, ideas and, and thought are informing theology or beliefs. And, and that's a process that just happens regardless, it seems to me. Like we all bring certain things to the table when we're thinking about God. We all bring our own ideas and philosophy, to use that word. And you show that throughout the centuries, philosophy and theology really have worked together, and it's almost impossible. I don't even know if I'd say almost. It just doesn't seem possible to think about God without thinking. (laughs) But some Christians have tried. Um, You you describe apophatic theology. Maybe talk a little bit about that, and then just about philosophy in general. Yeah, let me start by saying something about philosophy in general. I think sometimes we have assumed, and and sometimes we have— flat out said that philosophy corrupted the Christian notion of God. We have this idea that there was this pure understanding of who God was and who Christ was in the New Testament. Then after that, uh, Christians started reading Plato or something like that, and that messed up their understanding of who God was, and it became unintelligible after that. I think we need to be really careful with those sorts of assumptions, in part because we also believe that even people like Plato were inspired. Uh, There's this great uh, statement made by the First Presidency of the Church back in 1978, where they said, Philosophers, including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. So we should be hesitant to dismiss something on the basis of its similarity or difference from the philosophy of Plato, Socrates, and others, and instead try and understand the the rationale, the, the reasoning behind the description of God in that way. Another thing that's important to point out about philosophy in general is that Christians who affirmed that God did have a body used philosophy in their arguments to insist that God did have a body. And Christians who affirmed God didn't have a body also used philosophy in their arguments that God didn't have a body. Ancient Greek philosophers called Stoics affirmed that uh, the divine was embodied, had a tangible body, that matter was, was more refined, but that there was no such thing as immaterial matter. And people such as Tertullian, who I mentioned earlier, relied on Stoic philosophy to make that argument. And then there were others, such as a Christian theologian named Origen of Alexandria, who insisted that God could not possibly have a body uh, based on 
based on the philosophy of Plato as it had evolved in his time and made that argument basically because if you look at human bodies, they can get sick, they can be damaged, they can fall apart. And Origen wanted to insist that anything that could do that could not possibly represent all that God is. So God cannot have a body, certainly not a body as we humans think about a body. So those were the two sides of the argument, and both of them were based in philosophy. Now, uh, you mentioned an apophatic approach to theology. Apophatic theology is a theology of negation. Uh, It's a theology of describing God by describing what God is not. If, for instance, you acknowledge with, with Isaiah that God's ways are higher than our ways, then you have to acknowledge that God is not entirely like us, right? So if God is not entirely like us, how do we describe a God who is not entirely like us? Well, one way of trying to do that is by describing what that God is not. So if I can understand what a human body is, so the logic goes, God must not have a human body. He must be beyond that. Now, you can see how that logic works, even if, as Latter-day Saints, we disagree with that logic. But the whole reason they had to employ logic to try and make sense of what God's body is like is because our scriptures are not entirely clear. Some of our scriptures describe God as having a body, as creating humans in the image of God, which could suggest that God has a body of Moses speaking with God face to face, or Moses seeing the back of God as God passes by him. And yet there are other scriptures that describe God as having wings, or God as being a giant, or God as being fire or a spirit. So right away, you have to decide which of these are metaphor and which of these are literal descriptions of God. And for us as Latter-day Saints, we have a passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that makes it quite clear that God has a body. And therefore, when we read these passages, we sort them out based on which we consider literal and which metaphorical based on that passage from Doctrine and Covenants. Ancient Christians approached it in different ways. What do you hope Latter-day Saints get from this book as a whole? As Thinking about it as as a co-editor— What's your hope for readers as they come to meet these ancient Christians? I hope that as readers meet these ancient Christians, they not only come to love and appreciate them and maybe even see them as our ancient spiritual ancestors that we can we can learn from, uh, but also that they will come to love and appreciate our fellow Christians today that don't hold all of our same beliefs and, and practices. In fact, by understanding our shared history better, it enables us to better have conversations with other Christians today. And by understanding this ancient Christian history that is largely founded on Christians carefully reading the Bible that we love and hold dear today, we may gain new insights into our own beliefs and practices. We may be able to see them from different perspectives or see them in new light in ways that will help us to be better Latter-day Saints. That's Jason R. Combs. He's assistant professor of ancient scripture at BYU. 
He earned his PhD in Religious Studies from UNC at Chapel Hill, focusing on the history of early Christianity. He co-edited the book, Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. Today we talked about the chapter that he contributed to this book, Divine Nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jason, thanks again for taking the time to talk about this book. It's a really great book. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.